This is episode 2E of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, July 17th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Now without buffer overruns. Awesome. Well, we don't know yet. I'm recording on a different partition. I hope that works. I actually didn't, didn't hear the skip, but I didn't. This is me revealing that Bradley does. I think everybody here, everybody who listens regularly knows that Bradley does most of the work and uh, that's not done by Dan Lynch. Well, you're just revealing that you've never actually listened to an episode of That's Freedom not Freedom. true. I have. I'm multiple, <laughs> I have on multiple occasions, including one or two, I think, where I did the show notes. Okay. Uh, free is in freedom. I'm um, free is in freedom. Really? Thought so. Okay. Definitely the software freedom law show. Well, I did, that a, I agree I did a, a whole bunch of those. I agree with that. Yeah. I thought I did one or two for free is in freedom. But do you, do you want to bet on this? No. Darn. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to make some money from Karen, but she won't bet. So I'm not the betting type. I know. We've done this before. We've been in this place before. We have. This so. is the, this is the last Fosdom show, Fosdom 2012, the conference that ended in February. <laughs> in July, we have the final installment. We missed Dave Neary's talk, as we talked about, which we're sorry about. Um, but this is the last. Uh, this is the only talk that was the only talk in the end that we had to miss, and we've got the whole. Is that true? Track. I think that right. Was there was our substitution talk because, but that well, wasn't but worth. That, that wasn't worth playing. Yeah, no. Um, that was just us. The people were going to hear us. They're going to hear us anyway. That's true. So they don't need to hear more us. But wouldn't that be kind of meta? No. Because we've done our own talk recordings before. We've done your, we did your talk at OzCon. But we, oh no, and we did actually play, did we not play the, I think we did play a talk where the two of us gave a talk at a conference. I think that was maybe a talk about the GCC exception, Runtime Library No, exception. no, we didn't record that one. That oh, was, we didn't that record was a that horrendous one? talk. That wasn't a very don't good talk. Don't even talk about that talk. That was the worst talk we well, ever we've gave. We've done a few talks together. The worst talk I have ever gave. I think it was the worst talk you ever it gave. Was, and collectively is the worst talk we ever gave together. It, it, that's true. It definitely the is only the thing good about that talk was Bedell asked some useful questions and we talked back and forth with Bedell. But that was the only thing good about that talk. I don't think it was talk. actually the worst talk I ever gave. It was gave. really bad talk. It it wasn't that bad. It was pretty bad. It wasn't good. It was pretty bad. But it wasn't it wasn't as bad as the one I gave on nonprofits. The first uh, talk I gave. Um, which, Are you talking about the one at that thing? I yeah. am. Let's 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 not. Yeah, yeah. No, let's, let's not go there. But, we but early on, I was giving bad talks. Well, it was just it was just excruciatingly boring. I may still be excruciatingly boring, but at well, least I'm always excruciatingly boring. That's not the issue. But the GCC talk we gave wasn't yeah. nearly as boring right but we did we did that. talk in detail on an old episode of the old show i think about the gcc exception so I it sort of was did. like that talk but it was not the talk yeah the talk was bad so this is a talk that is not bad from mike <laughs> mike linksfair <laughs> uh who was the final speaker he, he got the worst slot in some ways uh, the final slot of the day actually maybe the first slot was the worst slot because people weren't there yet yeah it was packed as i recall it I, was packed I, the whole day i so. was sitting in it like on the steps in the aisle yeah and i was and there were plenty of people um standing in the back and it was standing room only yeah it was standing room only because i went to the back by the windows because it was too hot in that room by right. that time so because they turned the heat on because it was nice and cold, and I didn't have a coat. Remember this? I had no coat I do remember. in Belgium. I didn't bring yeah. a coat. 
I'd never been to Europe in the winter before. But it was also unseasonably cold. It was like a really it was, on top it was, like of a, that, yeah. it was a cold snap. It was particularly A lot of people bad. died in that cold snap. I did not die. Yeah, and then I actually I went. I to, had no coat, but I did not die. I'm really glad. Huh. And when we I went to Mallorca afterwards, which was also unseasonably cold. What's your orca? Hey. <laughs> I don't know what that is actually. I don't know you where don't know is. where Mallorca is? I don't know where Mallorca is. Where is it? It's near Ibiza. It's an island off of Spain. Oh. Well, there's islands everywhere. Um, there's some interesting facts about Mallorca that I probably our listeners don't care about. I'm sure they don't. Like uh, Chopin got very sick in Mallorca because he also had a, a, cold, a cold winter in Mallorca. Oh. When he was there with Georges Sand. Bradley is giving me this look of, like, I won't even make eye contact with you because I'm so bored by what you say, and it's so irrelevant to anything that I care about. Well, we have to talk about this talk. Okay. Well, I would say we don't have to talk about this talk until after mm-hmm. our listeners hear the talk. And I would say, um, for those of you who for whom it's easy to do so, I would... We, we do have slides, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I would I would listen to it with the slides, I think, for especially for the second half of the talk. And there's a number of points where Mike makes reference to things that are on the slides, too. So you really probably want to have them. Uh, if you can't, uh, then you may... There's parts you may want to skip because he's making reference to text on the slides, so it might be a little confusing. But other than that, enjoy the talk. I'm going to talk a fair amount, fair bit, fair bit about 4.0. I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, public policy. Uh, these are my overall aims for the for the talk, basically to uh, encourage people who are interested in philosophy, legal, and policy stuff to uh, broaden your interest in activism in two dimensions. One is uh, that. Domains other than software that use very similar tools are often actually use free software licenses anyway. Um, need your expertise, and it's in your interest to uh, help there when you have time. The other is that we need more pro-freedom public policy. Uh, so I want to start on the public policy part. And although the last panel is a little bit of a counterexample. Most of the policy discussed in this room has been basically about how do you uh, how do you run a free software project? How does a free how does a free software project relate to a corporation? Questions like that, and those are that's really really important policy. But I think if free software is important as most of us who came to this conference probably think it is, we also need to think a lot more about public policy. Um, kind of starting from the bottom, uh, Creative Commons and people in the uh, open content, open access, open education sort of field have had a number of small small successes in recent years, getting funders and governments to mandate, uh, usually using a CC license when for educational materials, for example. And I know that there's been a fair amount of activism, especially from the FSFE um, in the software world. I'm not very familiar with it, and I think, and I'm probably one of the few people who probably would be familiar with 
sort of the public policy activism in both domains. I, th I think that probably indicates a potential problem that either there's not enough, well, I think there, there's not enough public policy activism on the Creative Commons sort of side of things, but I suspect there's also not nearly enough in the um, in the free software world, and uh, maybe some of that could be solved by us working together more. I mean, one one anecdote: there was a uh, talking to a major funder of open educational materials, um, and they and at some point, free software and free formats came up, and they and they said basically that years ago they decided that teachers. You know, even if they're creating free educational materials, they're going to use Microsoft Word, and it's just pointless to to even engage in that conversation. And that may be that may be practical for them, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's also kind of sad that um, free software has not made its case well enough that somebody who is really passionate about uh, about open education, you know, doesn't see the necessity of promoting free software in educational context as well as, as free content. Um, I also want to point out that this isn't, what I think of as public policy is really about promoting the so, promoting social good or social welfare. Um, and so if we, if we get really good at promoting free software and free culture as public policy, that scales up to governments and international organi international organizations, but also down um, to business, corporate responsibility, sort of policies, and also individuals seeing it as their social responsibility to uh, use free software, not because it gives them freedom, uh, but because by not using free software, they're uh, promoting non-freedom for society. I, I think the social, I think freedom as a as a social responsibility is very different from the kind of uh, freedom as a feature that essentially open source represents, and the freedom to control your own computing that free software usually represents. Um, so, so I would uh, continue on the public policy vein. If free software, I don't know why it's saying mirror screens. Um, anyway, uh, if free software is really important, really socially important, then I think that voluntary public licenses, including strong copy copyleft ones, are are inadequate for the task. They're extremely important. Don't uh, don't get me wrong. I've and I've been working in an organization developing. Voluntary public licenses for for eight years, so I think I think they're important. Um, but let me show you a web page. Um, wrong one. So we have this uh, web page. I think in the last eighteen months, published by the Free Software Foundation, talking about the advantages of free software, basically saying. Why ask about the advantages of non non free of free software? Proprietary software is the equivalent of handcuffs, and you know if you're wearing handcuffs, you basically can't do anything. Um, I think that that's uh, that only works if, for whatever reason, you have a personality that 
intuitively gets that software freedom is important. Um, just stating it is not very convincing to most of the population. Most of the population uses proprietary software and they don't feel the handcuffs. They don't feel like they can't, uh, they can't carry a backpack because they're, or whatever the computing equivalent of that is. So I, I think that we need to dramatically expand the, uh, the ethical and other kind of social good arguments that we're making. I actually think this is the most important policy challenge for free software and also for, for free content. It's not, uh, it's not how do we make our projects a little bit more efficient and not get exploited by, uh, by corporations and those sorts of things. It's convincing, uh, convincing the broad, uh, population, but also opinion leaders, for lack of a better term, that, that software freedom really matters. It's really crucial to the future, future of society. And, um, I think that if free software ethics is really important, then, uh, then, for example, moral philosophers need to be thinking about it. And not just in terms of freedom, which is important ethically, but also you have, uh, you have equality for something that's often um, often seen as a dual of freedom, and free software has a great equality story, but it's uh, it's it's really rarely made. I think it's really crucial that it be made. Um, economists and other social scientists need to really care about this. There's a uh, somebody made the point about things being cyclical. Oh, it was Allison Randall making point about history repeating. You, you can also see uh, that with broader debates about intellectual freedom and the knowledge commons. I, I think in the, in the mid to late 1800s, there was a lot of debate about patents. And in fact, either the Netherlands or Switzerland actually abolished patents briefly. Um, and economists were actually extremely involved in that, in that debate. And, uh, and importance in it, but essentially freedom lost that debate and, um, and industry that just wanted, uh, wanted another method to extract rents won it. And economists especially, but social scientists generally kind of forgot about patents and copyright and other things, you know, after that. And I, I think to the great detriment of, of freedom throughout the 20th throughout the 20th century. Um, and of course, human rights activists, et cetera, should care. Um, and th there are, of course, people making these points. I highly recommend Karen's talk from LCA as well as um, Jake Applebaum's. But oh, and then one final point on uh, the public policy side. I was happy to see, I can't remember his name, but somebody was making the point about uh, political activism and free software uh, in the morning and gave as a positive example uh, activism against SOPA and PIPA. I, and I think it's fantastic that the technology industry and in particular free software and free culture activists really have been great in fighting ACT and, and SOPA. However, I'm really disappointed that free software and free culture activism aren't 
part of the art seen as part of the opposition. Basically, if if more of the world was using free software and much of the culture we were uh, participating in was free, there wouldn't be a constituency for for things that would break break the internet. So I'd like to see the freedom activists, at least the Vanguard's mission to be uh, to change from participating in reactionary uh, activism, which is which is certainly necessary, but at the very least make proactive activism that is for free so that is pro free software part of the conversation. Um, and uh, just one more point uh, the, that I really want to make. The um, free software, of course, requires access to source so that you can learn from it, so that you can modify it, so that you can, you can share it. That actually points to a, um, a, another big way to expand the way we think about, about policy, and that is it's not just a matter of... of, of uh, software being released under a free license. It's also, it do, does the public actually have access to source? And uh, this is a, this can be a consumer safety sort of, of question. Um, and we should be able to get people who are, if we can't get people who are interested in things like consumer safety to be free software advocates, then we're either we're just wrong and free software isn't that important or we're making bad arguments. Okay, so uh, this is kind of a, a joke that was on Identica or uh, where Evan Perdomo was saying that uh, someday knowing the ins and outs of copyright will be like knowing obscure rules from a past totalitarian age. Um, but um, ironically, the remainder of this talk is 100% about that. And how much time do I have left? You have 15 minutes. Great. Because I think, of course, that public licenses are really important for free software and for free culture. Um, so this is, uh, the next couple of slides are the second part about making a case that people interested in floss legal and policy should uh, expand your uh, interest a little bit. So I want to, th there are a bunch of different domains, software being one, that people have created licenses, created public mainly copyright, copyright licenses tailored to. And of course, software led the way. Um, there's also content, if you can accept that word, uh, that Creative Commons is normally applied to. You've got hardware, uh, databases, fonts, public sector information, software documentation, such as the FDL is a license created specifically for software documentation, standards documentation. Uh, and I say that we mostly avoided domain-specific licenses for educational material, scientific communications, music, and wikis, although you can kind of make the case that we haven't truly avoided them, but I don't have time to make the case. Um, so some of the many, then these are just examples to provide evidence that we actually do have domain-specific licenses for all of those do domains. Um, an interesting thing, though, 
is that in all of those domains, uh, you know, in addition to software and content, free software licenses or Creative Commons licenses have been used in those domains. Um, so what what uh, what do those sort of overlap between applications of uh, free software and free cultural licenses and these domain-specific mechanisms. What does that actually mean? Well, it could mean that a, a kind of license proliferation, especially to accommodate the, the specifics of different domains, is underrated as a problem because it's a good thing that people are innovating and making these, you know, licenses that are really tailored to the need of font designers, for example. Could mean that it's overrated. I mean, it could mean that it is, uh, I'm sorry, overrated as a problem. It could be that license proliferation is actually underrated as a problem and that it's really kind of a small tragedy that people are creating uh, licenses tailored to these different domains because they don't often don't know how to do it well and uh, in the long term incompatibility is going to be a big problem and they you know really should be using the GPL for everything maybe. Um, so in, if you want to boil it down to a really simple uh, yes or no, there's a question about fee what what do we win via the features of new licenses versus what are the costs of further silos? Um, whatever the answer to that is, I think that that floss legal ex legal and policy experts can benefit the world by sharing your expertise because uh, free software is generally a number of years ahead and has much bigger pool of expertise than people developing uh, specific licenses for other domains, including including content. Um, another kind of subsidiary question from that is that uh, CC has always strongly disrecommended dis using CC licenses, any of the CC licenses, except for more recently a public domain dedication we have. Um, for software, because we realized that that would kind of, if we didn't, it would just pollute the um, free software pool. You'd have a bunch of people using incompatible and even uh, and even non-free non-free licenses. So I think that's been a very good thing that CC has done. Um, but. Given that free software licenses are used across a bunch of these different domains, are there sort of domains that free software should either explicitly disclaim and say, don't use a free software license for this, or should free software embrace some of, some of these domains? Um, Oh, and why does CC exist as it is, I think, is sort of a, a question that comes naturally from this kind of thinking. And I think it's in part because free software um, was not paying. I, free software, I mean, there's no entity that is free software. But in general, uh, free software people in the late 90s when people were inventing, uh, people saw the success of free software, like, gee, maybe we could do this with with uh, books or music or whatever. 
free software people weren't paying super close attention um, to that. And I don't know if, uh, and so that allowed people to kind of make up a bunch of bogus licenses in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then for Creative Commons, which had some notoriety and some money, et cetera, to essentially drop a neutron bomb on the the nascent field of open content licenses um, and become the only, uh, or the, the by far the most relevant entity. Um, and I think that because we now know that sort of thing happens, I think we should be thinking proactively when people are discussing new licenses for open hardware or whatever. Um, the free software community uh, needs to be paying attention and, and guiding the discussion. Okay, so Creative Commons 4.0 licenses um, is what I'm going to talk about the rest of the time. Some of the issues that are being considered that might be of interest uh, that might be of interest to you and i'll just say again I, I i think some of these issues should be of interest to you because you're probably going to encounter creative the creative commons 4.0 licenses eventually in your career as a free software advocate or developer or whatever um, because they're going to be very widely adopted. And as you saw a couple of several slides ago, there are a bunch of domains where, you know, both free software licenses and Creative Commons licenses have have been used. So um, so first I want to go over some of the goals of the process we have. The first being internationalization. We've um, Historically, Creative Commons has done something that hasn't been done for free software licenses, although the EUPL is uh, sort of an exception. Um, and that is, we say we port Creative Commons licenses to different jurisdictions, which is sort of odd because all of the licenses are intended to work globally. Um, in any case, in the three, version 3.0, we removed most of the U.S.-specific language or language that was drawn from U.S. law and convention. And we need to complete that process in 4.0. And I personally would like to have a license that was seen as internationally or as international enough that we wouldn't have to do porting anymore. We never had to do porting, but Politically, there are many reasons why, if we don't do a great job, we'd have to continue porting. Um, and I, GPLv3 did a lot of work on internationalization. I've heard people mention in passing that there are lessons to be learned from that, things that maybe could have been could have been done even better than were done. Or So I'd really like to hear about... Uh, from the free software, in particular GPLv3 experience, what CC should, things that CC should be taking into account in terms of internationalization. Uh, interoperability, I'll talk more about that. Uh, okay. I'll talk more about stuff on this slide, the next slide. So there's a big tension with uh, license versioning like 
like uh, like CC 4.0, and that is, do you try to be visionary or have continuity? Do I have five Okay. Um, or, or rather, for for each decision, whether you try to have vision, have a, make visionary changes or continuity, what's really best for developing the commons? I think is the right question. Um, moral rights. This is what we have in the license now. It's long and hard to understand and needs clarification. But I'm not going to say anything more about it. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about sui generis database rights. That is, uh, this is another Identica conversation. Um, it's something that you shouldn't want to know about. Basically, it's a new, uh, it's a new restriction automatic that's kind of like copyright on database comp compilations. Um, the problem is that Creative Commons licenses don't currently uh, give permission to users if they would be impacted by by these rights, and so we need to need to get that right in version 4.0. Um, and there's sort of a peevish joke, in the, or it's just a rant, I'm sorry, in the last bullet, but I won't read it. Um, oh, M stands for emulated human. But uh, um, well, I, I think the, the problem with sui generis restrictions, though, is kind of interesting in that if uh, innovation policy, whatever intellectual protectionism, whatever you want to call it, continues to go in a bad direction over the next years, people are probably going to make up other new rights. And one of the issues with CC 4.0, I think, and that also free software people I'd be thinking about is how do we make our mechanisms robust to this kind of negative change? Um, yeah, so there's also discussion about what to do with our non-free licenses. Um, and it's not very interesting for this venue. Um, so I'm going to skip over that. So copyleft scope. Um, if cop So we have a copyleft license called Attribution Sharelike. Um, we might want to make it stickier, make it a stronger copyleft. In that sense, there are a lot of interesting issues uh, that uh, are that I don't have time to go to there. Um, okay, so DRM is an issue that you'll all be interested in. Currently, CC licenses prohibit it with this language, um, and a number of people from free software communities, primarily Debian, have actually not liked this prohibition because it's a restriction on what you can do with content. You can't distribute with DRM, even though we all hate DRM. Um, so there are a few interesting options. The parallel distribution uh, has been considered in the past. We might consider it again. There's, I, I like the idea of permitting circumvention. Um, so I just want to talk about one other thing I'm, I've done. So interoperability or compatibility, really. With other licenses, there's alignment, um, so making sure that the conditions in CC licenses match up well with, with other licenses. The, it gets interesting um, when you want to have compatibility with other copyleft licenses. One sort of more in CC's domain that 
could be interesting would be the free art license, the free documentation license and open database license. Um, I think the most interesting thing with those is probably uh, governance in that if, uh, if, if we were bilateral compatible with, with any of those, that brings up interesting issues around future versions and uh, because it's essentially you're binding if if everybody has future versions clauses then then users are sort of trusting in the stewardship of all of those organizations and that's probably part of the reasons as far as i know there's no bilateral compatibility among copyleft licenses and software um gpl is interesting just in part because um it might be healthy for the non for non software freedom to develop more of a source culture, and that implies that maybe a copy a source requiring copyleft license could be useful some of the time. It doesn't make any sense to invent yet another one, and so some limited form of GPL compatibility, one way could be interesting. Um, then there's readability to be considered, and this is sort of a uh, a joke. We're at the end. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So, Karen, we want to discuss a little bit about uh, what Mike said in his talk. But what was the license of the talk? Well, we well, so the license of the entire episode is going to be our usual license. But actually, Mike was kind enough to record a message for us. He's got a special message for you, our listeners. And I'm excited because I think I've, I heard this a while ago, but I no, didn't. you never heard it actually. Oh, I never heard it. I, I, we, we talked about what it was, but I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. So, so we have a special message from Mike Linksfair to our listeners about the license of his talk. Here it is. Words and slides associated with this presentation are released under the CC0 public domain dedication. Additionally, I grant you royalty-free patent license for any patents I control or will control that you would infringe by using these works under CC0. And finally, should you need CC0's fallback license, I grant you the additional permission to sublicense these works. I wouldn't mention these additional permissions if this we're not an advanced forum, meaning some of you may have read CC0 and might get such inside quasi-jokes about CC0. So, as Mike said, he actually put his talk under CC0. <laughs> I think we don't need a funny thing for this episode because that's the funny thing. It's in... The funny thing is in our in our episode because Mike provided the funny thing. That could be true. I guess we could have put it at the end for that. But we want, I wanted to discuss it briefly because the, the to make sure folks understood the inside joke with regard to the fact that there there's a this issue. Well, if with they the follow you or Fontana on Identica, they already know. That's true, but a lot of people probably don't. I'm sure many of our listeners don't even know. Well, they know what Identica is, but they don't read it. I'm sure. Yeah, but, maybe. But Mike also referred to yeah. other Identica in his talk. It's his true. Talk. So, uh, so I mean, I think he's right actually when he said about that that there's these arcane rules of copyright and and this this joke that Evan made about the uh, 
the, in the future people will will know these from some totalitarian regime. Um, the other thing I liked that he did bring he, in the early part of his talk, he actually addressed a question that bothers me, which it, which he talked in more detail about why we basically why we need to reach regular people because I don't actually believe we need to reach regular people and he had some sort of new right. reasons and I really believe that we need to I know you so do. I was so excited that he was talking about that and that he devoted a significant chunk of his talk to that plus he mentioned my talk yeah well he did in, in that context as as a as a opportunity uh, or a way to reach regular people about this issue but one thing he said about this issue of equality was important. Um, and I, I think that actually kind of relates to my, to my complaints about not reaching normal people as it were, uh, because it is an equality issue of people having equal access to their own software, even mm-hmm. if they're not programmers. And, and that's, that's, that's an issue. I thought it was so interesting for him to refer to it as a great equality story, because I don't really hear, I don't think we've really talked about it in terms of a great equality story no no and i think he's right to kind of point that out and sort of you know as a as a real failure of advocacy generally um i think we can do a lot better and i've been sort of scratching my head about what the best ways are to reach ordinary people i mean one of the reasons why i'm at gnome is because i think that it's so important to reach ordinary people and having software that anybody can use is one of the fundamental components of that and, you know, if I can't explain to people why that's important, then, you know, what am I doing? So I actually think that he's really right. And I, I'm wondering if maybe we just need, like, we need to write that. We need to collectively write that a great equality story and then tell it. I th- Perhaps. Also, his, his point about the, that there aren't people who are philosophers, and he talks about the patents and economists looking at the patent system and debating the patent system when it was becoming what it is today uh, in the 1800s. And that there isn't really that happening. That there's Most of the people who would, would be analysts of free software are mostly opportunists, and, and that really troubles me. Uh, that they're mostly folks who are who are trying. You know, the, the people the people that are given that credit are people like Matt Assay and and these people who are really just opportunists trying to find a way to make money with it and that sort of thing, rather than people who are saying what is the right public policy with regard to software. Well, this is one of those tricky tricky reasons why we're why we have difficulty explaining why free software is you know, is a bona fide charitable purpose in a lot of circumstances. It's because, you know, or we get into murky waters a lot because I think that because there's a real business interest in it as well, it's confusing to people where the ethical arguments are and how those policy arguments differ from a business opportunity. So I, I think you're right, but I think that actually it's, it's on us to do a better job. Well, maybe, but I think it's, it is a pro. It, it, uh, certainly, we could always do a better job. Anybody doing any job could be doing a better job. But there's no meeting this issue halfway because people do not treat technology as a political issue. The way, like, for example, in, and actually it's not true in Europe because it's a settled debate, but in a place like the United States where we're debating healthcare and, and healthcare is a debate and, it, and it's a public policy debate. 
that we actually have. And there's plenty of financial interests and there's plenty of companies that, that, that make money from healthcare and are manipulating the healthcare system for money, just like proprietary software companies. But we've decided in the United States as a culture to at least have a public debate, which is kind of funny because you think about how advanced Europe and Canada are with such better healthcare systems and we're still debating, but at least we're, it's a, it's at least it's a political issue. Technology is not even a political issue we in the United States. We haven't explained it to people. We haven't explained to people why they should care. And why it is a political issue. No, I'm just talking about free software. It's well, I know, all technology. Nobody cares. That te- nobody thinks that technology is a political issue. I think, I think that people do think of some aspects of technology as a political issue. But I think that in general, they, don't think of te- uh, they definitely don't think of software as a political issue. And getting them to see software as a potentially political issue is such an important thing. And it's something that we're not addressing. And I, you know, I, I, Mike says that we should have um, you know, consumer safety uh, experts um, involved, and I think that's right. But I think that also sort of veers us a little bit off course from this basic argument of, you know, why why are there is there an ethical component to free software, and why does it matter? And I actually, I, as I was listening to his talk, I was thinking that actually my medical devices advocacy only really goes a very small part of the way because it's advocating generally more for software transparency. I don't really tend to get into the, you know, the equality issues at all. And I, I, I think we need to, and I say we, I mean, we as nonprofit advocates and, you know, advocates for software freedom, but I also mean sort of we, the membership of the FSF, you're, a, you know, you're on the board of the FSF. I think that's something that, um, that I would love to see more of from, from the FSF um, because they're really well positioned to do that. And I think that maybe if we, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. Well, but I, I think if, I mean, if I think, we could get that, nonprofits generally in our space to band together in this way, it would be very helpful. I mean, I, I, I actually know the FSF wants to do that. Um, so there's two parts of what Mike said. Well, one is the is the reaching reaching normal people, as it were, uh, and who, like he said, don't see don't see themselves as handcuffed when they use proprietary software. So that issue. I, I think FSF does want to learn from and get better at. I, I think that, I, and I'm, I readily admit this as a board member, it's not an organization that has a lot of people in it that aren't technologists, and it's difficult for folks who aren't from our community from from our community to understand. And, and there's been efforts in the FSF to try and bridge that gap, and it's a very difficult uh, thing to to bridge. Uh, on the other part of the issue, which is the public policy. The way most public policy is influenced and done in the United States is through lobbyists, and obviously 501c3s can't lobby, so it's not the FSF's place. I actually think we need free I'm software not, lobbyists. I, I agree with you that we need free software lobbyists and that it's not the Free Software Foundations or any other C3s place to do that, but I don't think actually making good policy arguments, drawing those lines between you know telling the equality story of free software and of talking about it as an ethical um, issue. I I think that's something that just sort of telling the story is something that is perfectly appropriate for these charities to be doing. We're we're not doing it. Well, I think nobody wants to hear the story. I mean, that's the problem. Nobody wants to hear the story because we're not telling it in a compelling way. Maybe we need to... But it's not actually... The thing is, it's not a compelling story for most people. And this is where I sort of become completely in disagreement with everybody because I actually don't think... The, the free software argument by itself, I think the way you've uh, 
you've coupled it with the issue of healthcare and the issue of safety uh, for yourself and, and for those who have devices in their body. That's, an, that's a coupling that works and can convince people. But the straight free software issue of you can hire anybody you want to fix your bugs and you have a right to fix your bugs yourself and all those sorts of things, those benefits are just not benefits that people see outright. They, they get ancillary benefits from other people taking advantage of those things. Maybe where, we need to do like an It's a Wonderful Life version of what 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 would you know what would the world be like without free software what would we be missing because of the freedoms that we get from software from from software freedom and we have to make it up it would be fiction well but we can point by we can use facts to point to the you know the you know the actual innovations and developments that we but have people, from free but then software. we're back to people love apple right people love a totalitarian state i mean that's the issue people want to be in a totalitarian state. I mean, that's that's my sad view of humanity. I think that most people are happy to be under a dictator who doesn't treat them too badly. I think that I think people just don't understand because they haven't had the issues spelled out for them in the right way. I, and and you know, I, I think people do understand that Apple makes makes a lot of bad choices in terms of you know ethical decisions. And people, people have said, you know, I, I hear people sort of referring to their iPhones as, you know, as oh, you know, with a little, a little bit of guilt. You know, I know this isn't so, so great, but. Well, the guilt is probably because they spent way too much money on a telephone, but. Oh, I don't think that's where the guilt is. No. <laughs> I mean, that's this is such a hard. Actually, a, a very, a very amusing story related to spending too much money on technology. Um, so I had a, a very uh, enjoyable conversation with uh, one of Conservancy's directors, uh, Mark Galassi, who was he was sort of asking about like, well, where is the tablet market and and what and it, can you actually have software freedom on it? And he told him the usual answer, which is very complicated. And some Android devices you can build your own. There's not many tablets that you can actually build your own. A lot of them have proprietary drivers and so forth. Um, and. <laughs> And so he called me today at the day of recording and said, and said, he asked me another question. He said, Oh, I wanted to tell you the end of the tablet story. He said, I took the $300 that I was going to spend on a tablet and decided that the software freedom issues are just so bad. And I bought a better bicycle. And he says, my plan is I'll just, I'll just bike faster to a real computer and then use that when <laughs> I need, funny. when I need mobile computing. Um, <laughs> that's and, great. But I mean, that's, that's a, that's a guy who's been deeply involved in software freedom issues for many years saying, uh, because he's he's a scientist and therefore he doesn't have to interact with the the, the sort of tablet market unless he wants one. Decides, oh, I'm not even going to interact with the market. I'm just going to go. And he even said to me, he said, for scientific computing, I'm not worried about my software freedom. I'm worried about everybody else's. Yeah. Because for his software freedom, he's pretty sure in scientific computing he'll still have it. But he's sort of seeing the same thing that, that we are, which is that people are not caring about lockdown. That's what we talked about in our previous People episode. People don't care about lockdown, but maybe we could make them care a little bit better. Maybe we you should can't have make... Like, well, no, no, wait. You well, can't maybe, make anybody do well, anything. Well, but we can explain the situation to them a little bit better. But I, there's so many know, causes I've been really vying excited. for people's attention. And in fact, in fact, there's a lot more important causes going on. You know, I've been uh, excited by the reaction I've gotten to the medical devices talk, but it, as I said, it only goes part way. So... You know, maybe 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 I just should do a better a better job. But I was thinking maybe maybe actually having some kind of summit or conversation with 
gathering people together who care. You won't be invited. Don't worry. You you don't care about this issue, but maybe Mike well, would, maybe yeah. we would invite Mike. I think you should invite Mike Winstar <laughs> because he's very good at thinking about that particular question. And I think his experience at Creative Commons, which we didn't really talk in detail about, but yeah. but is uh, but is it relates. And I, I think he's right to invite people from the free software policy world. And basically part of his talk was basically an invitation to get these policymakers involved mm-hmm. in what's happening in CC, um, which I can't say anymore without thinking of a Jesus story of, of, of credit card or people. Um, do you know the story? Mm-mm. So on the CC, uh, so it's the the pound CC channel on Freenode, they would frequently get people who were looking to to illegally share people's stolen credit card numbers. Oh, really? Because apparently oh. CC is what it's called on other IRC networks. Wow. And um, and Ashish would troll them with pretending <laughs> like <laughs> basically answer questions correctly with, in terms of CC and. Um, right, and the one woman saying like, "I really need CC," and he's like, "I do too. <laughs> <laughs> it's really important to me. I've been involved with CC for a very long time." That's great. <laughs> so, but I can't say CC. But, but I think Mike's correct to invite people to be involved in CC with its process and, and give feedback. I, I mean, I, I think that if you look back historically at the the, the sort of this huge arguments between Larry Lessig and, and Stallman over the question of whether or not to have a non-commercial license uh, I, I, and, and all that sort of thing uh, is a non-derivatives license, I, I think is a very interesting situation. And that discussion never really continued. Uh, Larry stopped doing CC and I guess you guys on credit card. Um, uh, <laughs> Larry stopped being involved with Creative Commons and, and then the debate sort of ended because it was Stallman and Larry going at each other. Um, well, no, I mean a lot of those discussions still continued, and I think that the ways they, that they're not as much as the they ways had. that Creative Commons have addressed have addressed some of the um, taken steps to address the free culture issues, I think, are positive steps in this direction. Yeah, I mean, it's the uh, the, the the thinking of CC is still the smorgasbord of of we want to give you every option, including mm-hmm. CC proprietary or something, right? I mean. I mean, I'm surprised they, they don't wanna, have CC they proprietary. Give, uh, they want to give uh, uh, gateway licenses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I mean, the, the, the yeah, it's. Uh, but at but, least now it's much clearer what that means. Yeah, and the new license picker that they rolled out is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know Chris Weber did a lot of work on that. Yeah. And so and so it's it's uh, I I think I think that they have improved, but it's it's a different. I, I it's, there is a culture clash, and I th- I think Mike is speaking to that, and I think uh, subtly Mike is sort of saying that. This free software policy world is incredibly insular. I, you know, I've sort yep. of watched this this whole um, response to Richard Fontana's copy left next, and and realized that how insular all this is, and how I, I mean, I think Fontana. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily mean to bring this up, but people are probably going to ask about it anyway. Fontana launched it basically as a toy project, um, and it got immediate interest in part because the community is so insular. That three people find out about something and suddenly it's huge news in this little tiny segment of our population. Yeah, and then actually the indicator there is not is is, 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 is the the indicator is our community is too small because it kind of shouldn't have been news, <laughs> but it was because it was so small as a community. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that the GPL generally is a um, is is a really important license, and I think that's that's true to a much broader section of the population um, because of all the industry that uses GPL software across the board. And I think that the in- initial name of the mm-hmm. um, of the project, which was GPL Next, 
certainly would have raised a lot of eyebrows anyway because it was coming from one of the mm-hmm. authors of the of the last GPL license. I guess that's true, or but I, I, I think I think that the the fact that and, and this is the same thing and and to compare it to something else that that I I was more directly involved with. The same thing that happened with the whole toy box, uh, which which John Corbett correctly called the Tempest in a toy box. I mean, the fact that those kinds of little things happen and then suddenly they're this huge news for this very, very small group of people. Yeah, uh, I don't disagree with you. It, would, it we're means too we're insular. too insular. We're too insular. I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, I think that, that pro- the problem is that this, this problem is also connected to the first part of Mike's talk, which is that, you know, we're not we're not bringing in a broader range of people like we should be. You know, we stick with our insular little group. And part of that is our failure to explain what we're doing and why it's so important. Yeah. I think we can actually, like, I think that's one thing that Creative Commons has been really good at doing is, is you know, addressing a much wider portion of the population. And we could probably all learn from each other. I guess. Although I still see under a Creative Commons license as the standard use of CC, um, which is like it shows that there's there's just not a lot of knowledge and understanding out there about what's and people don't want to know things in depth. I mean, this is the classic thing of of most people in the world if they know about any of this stuff. And so, so you take the population that knows anything about any of this, they think the FSF, the EFF, the SFLC, the Conservancy, CC, and Apache Software Foundation are all in the same organization, right? They can't tell the difference between any of those organizations. They have no idea. They're just like, oh yeah, that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the people that know, which is already a tiny segment of the population. Then you take an s- even smaller subset of that. People can actually make a distinction between all those different organizations. Yeah, that's probably true. I think that, that under Creative Commons license has been going out of favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because of the implementations that CC has worked hard yeah, on. That's with true. Different, you know, different web services mm-hmm. where you can't just, you, you, where you're choosing which license it is that you want to yeah, yeah, identify I agree. for your I agree, works. but it was, I mean, it, it, the fact that that text was out there at any point is, is sort of like repeating the mistakes of free software, which I think is Mike's point. Mike's point right. is that we know better about this. And, 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 to, and I think his point about license proliferation is interesting because he's like, we scoff at, oh, you're writing hardware license, which I do. I'm like, oh, you know, pick your favorite free, free hardware license when no one in the free hardware community has made the case why GPL doesn't work. There's nobody who really understands it who can say GPL does not work because mm-hmm. no one can make that argument to me, especially GPL v3. Um, and so what do I do as a GPLv3 expert? I scoff at them, which is wrong. It's wrong for me to do that. There's no question about that. Well, it certainly keeps us more insular. Agree, agree. <laughs> and that's my whole point here, is that, is that it keeps us more insular, and it means that there is going to be this professional licenses. And Mike's point is, well, is that really that bad? But shouldn't we be trying to help them? My problem is when I go in to try to help them, I just try to educate them about what the GPL says, and, and then there's like this disconnect because they've got a document they've written, and they're they're, you know, I'm about to quote an episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Go for it. So I was going to, in the, in the, in the second uh, part of reunification, reunification part two, where Spock says, like the early Vulcans, these people are struggling to find a more evolved philosophy. And I feel like that when I talk to these people, they're like, well, they, they, they really want to do that. And I should be like Spock. I should go live on Romulus and help them reach that point in, in a patient sort of way. Uh, but he's got like 125 years on me, and he's, <laughs> he's a much better diplomat, so he's able to do that with the Romulans. And I, I, can't, 
I, I don't know how to do that with the free hardware community, with the free culture community, with these other people where my expertise would probably be, a, I, I, may, I mean, maybe it's arrogant to say, but probably be a help, a help to their efforts. And instead, I, I'm, I'm over here scoffing at them. And I admit that that's wrong. Well, you're not actually scoffing now, which is good. But, uh, you know, if, I, I'm I sorry, do what I read the email. Of Star Trek totally had me in this little uh, distracted little... Well, you're more um, like Spock, you know. I am? Yeah, well, you're much more able to... to uh, to, hmm. to be patient and communicate with people. That's interesting. It must be my half-human side. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what I was about to say is that... Is that As Spock said, Sarek would have called this mission a fool's errand. <laughs> one of the things- I have learned to see, as he says in that episode... Beyond the pure logic <laughs> one of, the of what could be possible. I'm really excited about having a baby is to get one of those, to get some of those little Star Trek little outfits that they saw on Think Geek. Hmm. <laughs> and so that's what I was totally thinking about. <laughs> well, you'll have a child, they, they get to watch Star Trek. They're not going to like it, though. That's the worst part. Because well, kids never like what their parents like. But my parents like Star Trek. But, but you don't... We watched it together. Oh. But you were older. No, not when I was watching the original series with them. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the great thing about... If, if, you, if you've if you never watched in the Star Trek The Next Generation, and you only watch the old series... And I'm speaking mostly to Richard Fontana here. Um, this is a very Fontana-centric episode. <laughs> well, I mean, it, the thing the thing is, is that when you see Reunification, which is an amazing episode, of course you have to see all of Next Gen first, but when you get to Reunification, you get Spock and no Shatner. I mean, that's sort of the holy grail <laughs> of the old series, is you have to deal with Shatner being there but to get Spock. In, but, my, my family, in my family, Shatner was always very popular. I'm sorry. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> He was good. He's not good at acting. <laughs> His character is not all that interesting either. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm sorry. I'm like, I have no... This is like, we're talking about like emotional feelings of TV shows for my youth. I, I have like the... the, As Spock's, the my response is, is so... <laughs> As Picard says to Pac, Spock, this sort of cowboy <laughs> diplomacy can't be tolerated in the Federation. We liked the cowboy diplomacy. We liked right. the reference to, to him as as a you know cowboy in space. Yeah, we loved that. Oh, well, you know what Spock says to Picard in that moment? He says, "I can't remember." I was engaged in cowboy diplomacy hundreds of years before you were born. Not hundreds, but years right. before you were even born. Right. Which I feel was. like we should end there. How that was seventy we, years, actually. How can we improve upon that? Years. I don't know. So I'm sorry if I've spoiled reunification for anyone. Thanks to Mike Linksfair for his talk. And we'll we oh a programming note. I'm not going to cut. Uh, there may be a delay in our next episode, and we're warning right. people now. Oscon followed by Guadac could cause trouble. Yep. We're just letting you know. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom 
Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. Thank you.